0: I think I saw him wandering around tonight as well. Uh, But tonight, Skylight Books welcomes back Rachel Kushner for her new novel, The Flamethrowers. Uh, It was ten years ago when I first met Rachel, and at the time I was already impressed with her writing and her credits and her taste. She seemed to be interested in the same type of art and film and writing, as well as the same type of music that I was interested in. But the way she seemed to express it in the pieces I was reading in magazines like The Art Forum Forum and others uh, was both uh, concise and lyrical, and her style was smart, but it did not uh, seem to alienate at all. Uh, Since then, she has exploded her style into longer fiction, and five years ago, we welcomed her first novel, the National Book Award finalist, Telex, from Cuba. Uh, Now we have the flamethrowers. When I was promoting this event, I was on Instagram, and I took a picture of the cover, and uh, the spell corrector turned Kushner into lushness. (laughs) Pretty good. Uh, (coughs) And in their new book, there exists a certain lushness of language for sure. Uh, It never detracts though from the storyline our narrator is trying to draw for us. Uh, The the way Rachel has infused make-believe into an incredibly detailed history seduced me. I engage even further into these characters and the novel, never doubting that my emotions and this engagement with the book was anything but real. Um, This makes me proud to introduce someone I know and someone for Skylight Books. Um, So please welcome the author, Rachel Kushner.
1: Thank you, Steve, for that kind introduction. Um, Wow, thanks everyone for coming to Skylight. Can you hear me okay? All right. um, Just think how different my life could have been if my last name was Leshness. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. um, I'm going to read from my new novel, The Flamethrowers, and... uh, I'll just say that um, it's narrated by a very young woman. She's 23 years old, who moves to New York City from Reno, Nevada. She's never named in the novel, um, and it mostly takes place in New York and uh, in Italy in 1977. I'll just—I'm going to read just a couple different parts. <clears throat> We shared a common drunkenness departing the castle's loft together, as if the group of us, Ronnie, Didier, Birdmore, Sandro, his cousin and I, carried a heavy blanket or rug over our heads, each supporting a little of the weight, which rested on all of us and resulted in our slack words, our swaying and knocking against one another in the freight elevator. Time had stretched like taffy, the night a place we would tumble into and through together, A kind of gymnasium, a space of generous borders, or else why would we have gone at one in the morning to Times Square? This is the old Times Square from the 70s. I didn't know why or whose idea it was only that the night felt roomy and needed to be filled. We broke into two groups, climbing into taxis and reconvened on 42nd Street where red light leaked like a juice from the theater entrances. A giant thermometer rising along one side of the allied chemical building shifted eerily from red to violet, red to violet. Below it was a frozen planet Earth cradled by a polar bear. My group, Ronnie, Birdmore and I, stood under a marquee on a broad wedge of pink carpet that flopped out to the sidewalk like a tongue, creating a semi-indoors, almost domestic ambience. There were posters lining the entrance, a woman's face, and bare shoulders against a black background behind the green door. It was all over over town, the advertisement for that film. She looked like a nude astronaut floating in space, too sensual for anything like a breathing tube. A stark look-at-me expression, solemn possibility. I used to be a nice girl. That was required that just recently having been one, the actress had been a Laundry Flakes model for a brand of soap that was extra gentle for baby's tender bottom. You had to look the part for such a spectacular fall. I had never looked the part. The gap between my two front teeth, as Ronnie said, spoiled my cake box appeal. Or as Sandro put it, gave a certain impression of mischief. I never thought I looked mischievous, but I'd always been told this. I could see this kind of thing in women with slightly crossed eyes, some breach in symmetry, suggesting another kind of breach in judgment or morals. Like the actress Karen Black, one eye slightly amiss in its focus. The women in Hustler cartoons were drawn with crossed eyes like Karen Black's. The mind is off-duty, but the body is open. There was that movie where poor Karen Black utters the fatal question at dinner with her lover's high-class family. Is there any ketchup? At the end she waits as the man goes into a service station bathroom while their gas is being pumped. A logging truck pulls up between the gas pumps and the restroom. When the man emerges from the restroom, the logging truck is there blocking her view of him. He approaches the truck's driver We hear only the freeway and the idle of the truck as he and the driver speak. He gets into the cab of the truck. It pulls out, climbs the highway on-ramp in low gear. The woman waits in the man's car, gets out, looks around, waits some more. The credits roll. Triple X, a man said to us, pointing toward another entrance. Large photographs of women stretching upward and backward like pythons. Why did snakes rear up like that, every moment poised for killing? We got only the hardest core rating, the man called out, triple X. Triple X isn't a rating, Ronnie said. They rate themselves that to make the movies sound better. Birdmore had wandered off and came around the corner toward us, light flashing over his noble profile and matted beard. He looked like Zeus lost in a casino. A taxi pulled up and Sandro, his cousin, and Didier got out. I forgot to say that Sandro is the narrator's boyfriend. I glanced at Birdmore, whose face registered Sandro's cousin's beauty. He watched her with interest, but also caution. It was the expression of a man who had handled beautiful women and could still admire them, but never wanted to handle them again. She bounded toward us, not at all aloof as I expected her to be. I hadn't said two words to her at dinner. Come on, who's coming in, she asked. I want to see a show. She turned to Ronnie. Not my kind of thing, Ronnie said. What is your kind of thing, she asked. That's a tough one, Ronnie said. Why? She sparkled her dark eyes at him. He seemed not to notice. Because there's no market for what I want to see. Then it can't be that bad, she said. For the worst things, there's a market. You're probably right about that. He looked at her as if he were making a new assessment now that she'd said something possibly smart. I thought of the girl in the photo in Ronnie's studio, the one on layaway, as he put it. She was probably waiting for him this very moment somewhere downtown, checking the clock, applying lipstick, concentrating herself into an arrow pointed at Ronnie, doing the various things women did when they had to wait for something they wanted. Sandro was counting bulbs on the marquees. He was never waiting for someone else. He was simply in the world, doing, acting on his interests. He said that Times Square was all soft rhomboids, that this this was part of the experience, the shapes of modern stamping technology reproduced here, in the shapes of signs and marquees, all rectangles with softened corners, streamlining as an attitude. It's funny they call it Times Square, Sandro said. There's a nude magazine in Italy called Le Ore, The Hours. Makes sense actually, Ronnie said, pornography is a way to mark time. You dictate when and how. There's no chance in it. It's clockwork, daily habits, control. It's the opposite of sex, which is pure freedom in all its horror. You never know when you're actually going to sleep with someone and when it does happen, the character is of surprise. This is actually happening. There is no surprise in simply getting off. It's scheduled activity, 3 p.m. midnight, the morning shower. You know those marital aids, so-called? The thing about those products is they promise enhanced sensitivity, increased pleasure, and it's just numbing cream to make you go longer. They add time, that's all they do. Sandro and Ronnie speculated on whether you could love pornography simply as a cinephile and on the unit of the quarter, because everything here was 25 cents a quarter to peek through a quarter size hole. Ronnie said the peep show was based on the advent calendar, that it was a Christian tradition, this kind of looking, opening a window onto Jerusalem, a peek at the manger for each day of December. Sandro laughed as if Ronnie was full of it, but also as if nothing pleased him more. You see it all through a hole, Ronnie said. Then I'm an Adventist, DDA replied. I believe in that kind of isolated viewing, the focus on parts, metonymy. Does anybody have quarters? The change man heard him and moved toward DDA in his coin dispensing belt. Adventist, Ronnie said with faked wonder. Does that mean you believe the end of the world is imminent? Sandro had told me that Ronnie had a long-standing grudge against DDA, something to do with a negative review DDA had once written of Ronnie's work. Oh yeah, all these people are artists too. Everything and nothing are imminent, DDA said. He handed the change man a five-dollar bill, cupping his hands for that amount in quarters. This moment now imminent. Wait, oh gosh, now past. It all depends on how you experience time. Time is a function of pleasure, as you just crudely pointed out. The experience of it, I mean. I just heard someone yawn. His blazer pockets weighted with quarters. Didier turned to Talia Valera. Are you coming? He said it somewhat insistently, as if she were obligated to go with him, because he alone among the men was willing. No, she said, glancing at Ronnie. Didier shrugged and went up the pink tongue of carpet into the theater. Um, I was just going to read one more part, very different part, that um, the narrator and her boyfriend Sandro are at his uh, aristocratic family's villa in northern Italy. She's sort of out of place. It was very cold in the dining room, almost colder than it had been outside. Later, I came to recognize the particular cheapness of the very rich. Sandro's mother was not concerned with saving money, rather she seemed to enjoy creating conditions that were slightly less than hospitable, even a little hostile with rooms that were 55 degrees Fahrenheit. And despite all the talk of the diminishing elite of people who knew or knew to know about the right Nebbiolos, wine in a box was mostly what we drank. We would see the same bread at dinner that we'd passed over at breakfast, stale and hard then in the morning, and by dinner time, tooth breaking. I thought of Ronnie's discourse on bread. Ronnie was amused that you could only find whole grain breads now in New York City's gourmet markets. Not that Ronnie shopped in gourmet markets, but one had opened in Soho and he perused the aisles to fuel his running commentaries. He said it was an irony that people had decided collectively that whole grains were more desirable than white bread, which, for centuries, had been the bread of the gentry. Everything's like this, he said. Refinement followed a certain course and reverse course. In this case, the literal refining of flour until super super refined white bread, light and fluffy like only kings and queens had once been able to obtain was widely available and so rich people had to go back to eating the crude whole grain breads they used to leave only for peasants. Now no educated person would be caught dead eating white bread not even a middle-class person Sandro was always amused by these rants of Ronnie's but here at the villa every custom was normal to him he ate the stale brown bread and said nothing about it eventually a servant came and started a fire in the dining room hearth and the room warmed up but a haze of suffocating smoke hung over the table a mesh of white tangles that thickened as dinner dragged on making it difficult to breathe On the ceiling above us was a fresco of Lake Como. In the lake, a circle of popes, or maybe bishops, in white gossamer robes. The fabric of their robes hung down below them like tendrils as these religious clerics treaded water. They were jellyfish popes. Oh, this is a reference to something earlier in the book. Not unlike the lonely transvestites popes floating on clouds, pure and pristine goodness. Or perhaps these men were the mirror image of that, They didn't seem like they could help anyone, occupied as they were with trying not to drown. As a servant came around to refill our glasses, the old novelist, Chesil Jones, who was seated at my left, leaned toward me and said he used to be a drinker, but he had given up booze. His breath reeked of alcohol. He and I were behind an enormous branched candlestick that blocked my view of Sandro. I asked the old novelist about his books. He narrowed his eyes at me as if I had insulted him. You'd like to discuss the most recent, wouldn't you? The soul of a whore was what I originally called it. Not her spirit, but the bottom of her shoe. And what do they come up with? Mrs. Dollface, for God's sakes. If you want to revisit the idiotic responses Mrs. Dollface has gotten, we can do that. I said I was simply curious about what sorts of things he wrote. "'Oh, oh, why, yes, of course,' he said, suddenly solicitous, realizing that I was not a hostile critic. "'There is a small library. I can have them brought to your room, the ones you should start with, in any case.'" Beyond the huge candelabra, the subject of tragic or tragic comic death continued from earlier, not that of a relative in Egypt, but of an Italian industrialist, or the heir of one, who instead of amassing more riches, had spent his family's money publishing pro-Soviet literature and supporting underground groups that wanted to overthrow the government. The man's name was Feltrinelli, like the chain of well-known bookstores. I remembered them from my time in Florence, but had no idea that Feltrinelli had been electrocuted, as the Count of Bolzano explained it, trying to sabotage Milan's power supply. He was found dead under a pylon. It had happened five years earlier. I got the feeling these people had discussed it plenty already, but because of its mysterious circumstances weren't ready to give up the subject. It wasn't clear if his death had been an accident, a suicide, or if he'd been murdered. Roberto said it didn't matter how it happened, that Feltrinelli's death had been a resounding defeat for the communists and a victory for anyone who felt it was a mistake for party boys to hemorrhage money to radical causes. He was a semi retard, even if he published Pasternak, Chuzzle Jones said. Semi retarded. He got his negative and his positive leads mixed up. That's how he died. Sandro said that was nonsense and that Feltronelli wasn't stupid. What happened had been a terrible tragedy. Have it how you want, Roberto, Sandro's brother said. I find him to have been a clown. You find him to have been tragic. Either way, he's dead, and that in itself is neither tragic nor clownish. It simply is. He asked for trouble and found it. What was he doing, for God's sakes, on a pylon? He didn't know negative from positive, the old novelist said, and put his hands together as if holding two leads, then shook like he was being electrocuted. So it's of no consequence, Sandro said to Roberto, whether he died by accident or was murdered. Roberto shrugged. He was a problem to business, to Italy, to the entire Ministry of the Interior, not to mention the CIA. A lot of people wanted him dead, and he managed to die on his own. Anyhow, who grieved over the death of John Giacomo Feltronelli? Roberto 8,000 people were at his funeral, Sandro said. It was in the New York Post and his death helped nothing. If he was killed, whoever killed him can count themselves responsible, at least in part for the violent sins. What do you know about the violence since, Sandro? Roberto said. You've been in New York making metal boxes, going- that's what he- his work is minimalist work, it's large aluminum boxes. Going to cocktail parties, or whatever it is you do, while Mama and I get phone calls about the latest round of sabotage, the latest work stoppage, the most recent supervisor to be killed. Are you aware of the problems? I'm saying martyrs give cause, they create sympathy, but you're right, I don't get those phone calls. I take my inheritance and give nothing back. I've never denied that. I think I'll stick to what I know. What subject is that, Sandro? His mother asked. Metal boxes, Mama. I thought you were going to say American girls, she said, not looking at me. How many have we met at this point? (laughs) Chesil Jones put his two hands together again and shook erratically. (laughs) I felt like hurting this old woman, and I believe she knew it, and that she felt, in reaction, both afraid of my anger and also morally defended against it, against such crude, low-class aggression. I never asked about Sandro's previous girlfriends. He teased me about that, wanted to know why I didn't ask, which made me sure it was wise not to, or at least sure that it bothered him that I didn't, because he wanted to make me jealous, and so I gave him no opening. Sandro told her to stop acting rude and then they were arguing, speaking very quickly and I could no longer follow. It was either about me or about some general failing on Sandro's part. Chesil Jones leaned toward me. Just ignore it. She's, what can I say? I'm fond of her, quite fond of her actually. But late tonight after the staff retires, she'll be bent over the open refrigerator counting slices of ham to be sure the servants haven't taken more than their allotment. She's tortured, bless her. Anyway, I can appreciate you. I can tell you're good folk, he said, looking at me and laughing. And by the way, I've been to Reno. I skied Mount Rose. My team trained there, I said, assuming Sandro must have told him I'd been a ski racer. It's a place I know so well. Did a bit of racing myself, he said. Nothing major. Sort of sub pro league. NASCAR, it's called. Actually, rather competitive. I have a bronze medal someplace, knocking around in a box of ribbons and whatnot from various hobbies of mine. I did retain something of a feel for the slalom course. The, m- the motion of it, it's in the knees like this, see? A bit in the hips as well. He swiveled back and forth in his chair, holding out his hands as if gripping ski poles. Women have a tough time learning to ski, he said. They don't have the mind for the physics of it, but they can learn by feel. I've been a pretty good instructor. I've got good form, a perfect stem Christie. Though my last wife got up to the top of the mountain, we were in Chamonix. Chamonix, the nitwit kept calling it. Chamonix. We took the cable car up to the top, we're ready to go, boots laced, skis strapped on, and she just freezes, stiff as a corpse. Sandro and his mother had finished arguing. Chesil Jones had everyone's attention. Noticing this, he cleared his throat and his delivery changed, became magisterial, as if he were duty-bound to part with some of his profound and cloistered knowledge for our benefit. The thing about skiing is that it's suited to men, partly because it's a great metaphor for other endeavors, endeavors of the mind. Martin Heidegger was a skier, did you know? The little hut in Totenberg, where he wrote, was right next to the chairlift. Legend has it that he gave his seminar at Freiburg directly from the slopes going on about the being for whom being is a question while wearing a parka and boot gaiters. As a young man I had a wonderful writing teacher who was a terrific skier. I'll never forget my first class with him. This was in Hanover, New Hampshire, dead of winter. Your assignment, he says, each one of you boys is to drink a case of beer and ski yourself off a cliff. He wanted us to feel the terror, see, not of the cold, of the speed, but of our talent. Just do with it what you must, what you will. With my own students, I... Why didn't you say anything to that bastard, Sandro asked me later that night as he dove playfully under the covers and grabbed me with his cold hands. There'd been a giant moth in our room, which he'd successfully shoot out a window. You were a racer for Christ's sake, he said, shivering under the duvet, and he's instructing you on the basics, ribbons and medals from my hobbies. What a moron. Sandro didn't understand why I let this old man go on at length, as if I'd never been on skis, but my experience had nothing to do with Chesil Jones. It wouldn't have interested him one bit. He didn't bring up skiing to have a conversation, but to lecture and instruct. I'd seen right away he was the type of person who grows deadly bored if disrupted from his plan to talk about himself, and I had no desire to waste my time and energy forcing on him what he would o- only will away in yawns and distracted looks. And anyhow, Chesil Jones probably hadn't skied in the 20 years since the stem Christie had been a popular technique. What was I to say? We make parallel turns now? The boots have buckles instead of laces? The bindings are quick release. After dinner, we retired to the living room. While his mother sneaked off to bed, Sandro put records on the old German phonograph and more wine was poured. We listened to Stravinsky, harsh but stirring strings, sounds that were like stiff brushes dipped in paint and used to make a geometry of lines in stark black. Signora Valera, that's Sandro's mother must have then switched on the television in her room upstairs because over the strings we heard distortedly loud voices interspersed with a laugh track. Wealthy Italian or Reno pensioner, it didn't matter. She was like any old person with her TV too loud. There were catalogs of Sandro's work on the coffee table and the industrial designer Luigi began flipping through them looking at Sandro's spare aluminum sculptures. Sandro had whispered to me in a moment alone in the hall that Luigi was also a soft-core pornographer with a foot and leg fetish and sold that work in editions of very limited print runs that cost thousands of dollars. I am stumped, Luigi said when he'd looked at every image in the two thick catalogs of Sandro's artwork. I just don't get it. Sandro was used to this Minimalism is a language, and even having gone to art school, I barely spoke it myself. I knew the basic idea that the objects were not meant to refer to anything but what they were, there in the room. Except that this was not really true, because they referred to a discourse that artists such as Sandro wrote long essays about. And if you didn't know the discourse, you couldn't take them for what they were, or were meant to be. You were simply confused. I'm going to just come out and ask you, Sandro, Luigi said, since I cannot infer from the work alone. Are you an ass man or a leg man? (laughs) Which is it? I'll stop there. Um, I will take, I will answer questions if anyone has one, but um, do not by any means feel obligated to... Can I ask you a very specific question, which is probably the kind that novelists don't like yet, but... I'm a leg man. (laughs) (laughs) Um, In, in, in the passage about Five Easy Pieces, how did you decide not to use Nicholson's, Jack Nicholson's name? So you refer to him as the man, right? What, like, is it is it because it's more hypnotic that way? Is it more? You know, it's. I, I'm just wondering what do you, I mean, maybe it wasn't even conscious. Maybe you just decided. Yeah, no, it's a good question. Um, <clears throat> it wasn't totally conscious, but I will say there. are, um some other films that are referenced in the book, um, and described in some detail for moments or effects that they have or produce on me that I really love about them. And I tried to be kind of hyper specific about them, but I also um, didn't name any of the films um, or the actors in them. and i don't I don't know why. I did that. I think, you know, you do what you're instructed to do by your unconscious in order to sustain the thing that I call like the frequency of the book, you know, like a tone. And um, tonally, for some reason, that movie would have come out uh, relatively recent to her narration of the scene in the book. And um, I just, I, I wasn't trying to recreate this realist thing like, oh, she wouldn't call him Jack Nicholson and call it Five Easy pieces. it wasn't so much like that it was just that she's registering in a different kind of way but maybe also those kinds of things for me um, are less attractive as a writer I don't do a lot of um, like registration of like 70s details or like soda brands or bell bottom you know anything like that so maybe that's another reason why thanks for asking though. anybody else yes yeah. did anyone try to get No, that's another good question. Um, Yeah, um, no, I I don't think they did. Marissa?
2: Can you talk a little bit about, um, I mean, this book has two separate worlds that you've joined together, the the 70s art world in New York and then the Italian, you know, revolutionary world. Can you talk a little bit about how you saw saw those two things and why you made the, the, those connections because they're not obvious I think, to most people but they become really obvious interesting not obvious but really
1: fascinating in the book the connection between the art world of New York City in the 1970s and uh, ultra leftist politics in Italy at that time which is sort of what the book is about I guess Uh, that is such a hard question Um, I mean I basically wrote the book to try to answer that question but um, I was attracted to key moments um, in New York City in like 1977 for instance and that general era give or take five years and key moments in Italy also in that um, general era and um, things that were happening in cities in New York City and in Rome And I didn't want to draw too many connections between them and make like a big systems novel where it turns out that there's an Italian company that's funding some New York thing, you know. um, It was more like... These things are going on at the same moment in time. And um, the 70s is sort of to crudely simplify the death of the industrial age. And Italy in the 70s is a place that strangely was making the fastest motorcycles in the world and has this history of um, futurism and kind of industrial culture and industrial design. And then they were having a kind of explosion of... um, uh, kind of, you know, illegality and protests in their factories in the north, such as Fiat um, and Pirelli, which is a big tire factory that I kind of was looking at. That's where the Red Brigades got their start. So I was just thinking about New York City is a place where artists were moving into old manufacturing warehouses, and the whole like death of industry is right there in the city because it has vacated itself and made cheap space in which artists were working, and even working with industrial materials. You know, the m- kind of minimalist aesthetic is about having the like one-off you know manufactured objects um, which in a way is even in and of itself about the death knell of industry because they aren't really um, factory objects they're made by very fussy fabricators in this tiny special little place called Lippincott in Connecticut so I was just thinking about industry and the 70s and protest movements and factories I guess and art there's um, in the Oh, Juan next, but then in the in the blind spot, David. <laughs> oh, okay. um, were you were you signaling to ask a question, or were you just saying hi? I'm, for help. No, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm here for I'm, you.
2: You. Um, you.
0: You write a number of scenes. It seems where there are a, a lot of characters, and you juggle them beautifully. And I'm wondering oh, if, you, if that just comes naturally and easily to you, or if you have any specific like conscious um, thought about how you orchestrate
1: that? Oh, d- could everyone hear the question? Yeah, okay, cool, yeah. Um, so, do uh, well, I had a long scene like that in my first novel as well. There's a, um, a uh, party scene where the, um, there's many characters speaking, and I sort of imagined it as if it's not written in an um, omniscient voice, it's like close, close third, and it goes from group to group to group to group, and then sometimes inside of a couple people's minds. and I just was imagining it a little cinematically, like a camera is roving around the room. I don't know, I guess I was thinking about that movie, is it Gosford Park? That Altman movie where it just goes from um, small clusters of people to the next cluster of people—it's just a fun thing for me formally to try to pull off um, in a. I don't read like you know every review of my book but in the, uh, re- one review of this new book that was particularly smart or told me things about my book that I wasn't conscious of she compared those scenes to um, like Cassavetes, like early 70s movies like Cassavetes and I do really love that kind of thing where people are um, improvising and talking on film and, and it's alive to me and I love that era in film so maybe I was trying to replicate some of the energy of that or something uh, did some Juan. In a
0: recent interview you mentioned you used to uh, ride motorcycles and kind of, really fast mm-hmm. and you mentioned uh, that you had a crash going over 100 miles an hour and uh, I've never seen any motorcycles around Albany, I've never seen any motorcycles around so I was wondering if that crash...
1: Um, kind of to rethink your Actually, I made that up. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, well, the, yeah, no, it's true. I did, I used to ride motorcycles. and, You know, I'm old. I mean, there's, you know, I've had many lives before this one. Um, literally. You know, uh, in my 20s, I was really into motorcycles and especially Italian bikes, but then I got into riding like ninjas and I did this crazy road race um, in Mexico. I wrote something about it that's in a book, but um, I I did crash going 138 miles an hour, Um, but I'm fine and that uh, that was (laughs) (laughs) maybe, Uh, but yeah, there's a whole story to that Um, and then my motorcycle got stolen as I was like limping off the road, um, which really sucked. I just felt like such an idiot for crashing. It was like this race bike I'd worked on for a year. And I was very lucky because I crashed in a soft, sandy berm. Um, It's on Highway 1 that goes from uh, Tijuana to Cabo San Lucas. And the race is that you um, span the length of Baja in one day, which is insane because it's 1,200 miles. So you have to average like 125 miles an hour. And the race doesn't exist anymore. The person who won the year that I did it was a good friend of mine. um, He died doing it the next year. And... um, A lot of people that I knew from motorcycle culture, I grew up in San Francisco and my dad's into motorcycles and I was always gravitated toward that world. I really respect people who are good racers and good mechanics. And, um, a lot of people died over the years, like so many, uh, and not just racing on racetracks, like the most brilliant, um, fabricator in San Francisco was going to the post office and making a left turn and somebody ran a red light and killed him. Um, so it was just accrued over the years, all of these things happening. Um, and I still got. I still got another bike after I crashed that Ninja. I had a Kajiva, which is a cool bike, has a Ducati motor. But I just sort of, yeah, I just decided that I, I didn't lo- love them enough to risk my life. Um, so, yeah, so I gave them up. And now I'm a mom and so it just doesn't seem worth it to risk my life when someone needs me to be their mom. Anybody else? Oh, sorry, yes. It seems like you construct, or you, there's like so much story in each sentence. That's just um, something I noticed when I was wondering Was it a process that I think. Well, the, a process for. Yeah, like, how, how you would. How you. Right. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess I take that as a compliment, but I um I have always been told I was a dense writer. um So maybe. I am just really focus on the level of the sentence. I mean maybe it's bad, I don't know, but I uh I want the sentence to do a lot of things. And I'm sort of not done with it as a, you know, in the draft until it's doing everything I need it to do. Um and I can't say that all the sentences do do that that they're successful, but like as a reader, I love that feeling when um Just in the sentence-by-sentence quality of the writing, it's not like about fussiness or perfection, you know, or like beautiful metaphors or anything for me. It's like I want to know that the author is right there. I want to feel like they're winking at me, you know, like that they can see the humor in everything that's happening. But then there's also this matter of story when you write a novel, there has to be this other kind of propulsion moving things along. And so the sentence has to do that. It has to do many jobs, I guess. So I just try to make it do as many jobs as it can bear. Yes. What? Okay. Oh, Dorna, hi. Hi. Hi, thanks, First, thanks for coming. That was a great reading. I'm um, very impressed with many aspects of this. I have a question about uh, how you felt differently writing the second novel compared to um, how that process differed because it was your second novel um, right. because of the way it was received, whatever ways you want to talk about. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, they were just they were just like completely different experiences. Um, but you know and different challenges i mean and but then some of the same challenges there's always just that question of like who am I and what do I have to say and like how do I get to that really good moment where I know what I'm doing and it always feels the same when you finally get there and like it sucks just as badly when on the days when you're not getting there Um, but my first book it took me a long time to write it Um, I didn't have any idea what I was doing and um, I started over several times and it's not that I knew more what I was doing now but um, I think I was I was in more of a rush or something. I don't know. I feel like I'm in a hurry. Like, life is short. And so, I think there was, I was, I mean, I was sort of in a hurry with the first one, but something about already having published a book let me know that I was probably gonna be able to write it. Um, and so, I felt more, just, there was like an intensity to it or something. Yeah. If that makes sense.
0: Yeah. Hey. Um, a- the motorcycle riding made me want to ride a motorcycle for sure. It was like I just, like I, just I did ride my motorcycle tonight because of that book. Cool. Yeah. And two, I, what I was wondering is sort of when you deal with history, and there's a lot of it that you're dealing with in this book, um, obviously a lot of it you didn't live yourself, but then it seems like from what you answered with your, with the story about you riding a motorcycle, that perhaps you're using history that you're generally drawn to, or do you go out and look for a specific history when you're writing like something, because you know you want to go to this place, you want to go to Italy during this time so you go out and look for that, or have you already been drawn to that and you're, you're pulling from that in this novel?
1: Yeah, I mostly write about things that I have a natural interest or pretty, exclusively, I guess, especially with this book, it was just things that um, I was directed toward because of life and people that I met, or things that I was reading and loved, like it's got to be that way for me, like if that's what you mean.
0: Yeah. And so then, you, so when you pull from that, is there, do you feel like there's not as much research that you're doing to, to guide you? Or are you, have you already done that in your like life? Have you already lived up to this moment and your research is already Just lived.
1: It? Just school of life. Um, yeah. Uh, w- I did more research with the first novel because, you know, it took place in Cuba where I've never really lived, although I spent some time there and in the 1950s, which is rem- very remote to me and it was about revolution and there's like a lot of political complexity to it that I don't want to necessarily include all of in the book, but I needed to understand in order make something of it but in this case I it was kind of more organic I didn't do a ton of research um, it was mostly things that I knew about and I guess that was really part of the fun of the energy in the writing um, and I'm I'm just not the kind of writer where like I'm going to have a character be um, like a tort lawyer and then I'm going learn everything about tort you know like I just stuff that seems boring to me I just don't include in the book I guess <laughs> yeah, I hope there aren't any tort lawyers here <laughs>
0: Do you want to do a last question? I have an easy
1: one. What is the picture on the cover? The picture on the cover? That's a great question. Hi Jennifer. yeah, um, the photo on the cover is um, a young woman who is unidentified, but I believe that she is like one of the, um, they were called the Metropolitan Indians, this kind of, these uh, radicals in Rome in the movement of 77, as it's called, and they painted their faces, um, and they used this kind of like um, reversals and humor to protest um, conditions in the government, like they would say, we want more churches, less housing, stuff like that in Italy. Um, and uh, the, it was on the cover of a newspaper called I Volci, which was named after a group of these um, leftists in Rome, um, whose headquarters was named after their street, Via de Volci. And I found it online, and then, um, or maybe Jason, my husband, found it online, and it had the brilliant idea that we should... Um, insist that the publisher use it for the cover, and eventually they agreed with us. So, but then there was this idea. They called me the, the day before the book was going to the printer, and they were like, "Do you have any? Do you have this lawyer called?" And she said, "Do you, do you think there's any possibility this woman is going to come out of the work and sue you for putting her on your book cover?" And I said, "Well, it's doubtful that that would happen, but why would she sue me?" And the lawyer said, Well, say she's married to a very high powered investment banker. (laughs) And uh, she hasn't told him about her radical past. (laughs) And I was like, You know, let's find her. So, anyway, Um, thanks everyone so much for coming.